and then we'll be able to do it. If you have a Bible, meet me in the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. We've got two sermons in Philippians left that I'm very excited about. And then we'll be kicking off a series uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, all about love. Guys, this is your public service announcement that Valentine's Day is around the corner and she will not tolerate your laziness. All right. So if you have a significant other, now's the time, fellas. All right. And uh, we're going to be in a sermon series called Ordered Love. Uh, Augustine, many, many years ago, wrote about how important it is for followers of Christ to have rightly ordered love. And so where does that come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the Lord. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13, affectionately known as the love chapter. And we're going to dive into that. And I think it's going to bless you. So excited about that. Um, as we dive in, though, to Philippians chapter 4, I want to just take a moment and just keep coming back, as I mentioned, to to that moment where we, as a church body, are making decisions on where to put our trust, on where to stand. You know, it's I was thinking this week just how grateful I am to be your pastor. It's an honor to be a pastor, period, but it's a it's a unique experience to watch God take something from nothing into something and that there be a people uh, that gather around the word of God and with the Holy Spirit's power and to be, uh, as the scripture says, one body, that we would have one faith, that we would have one Lord and one baptism and to let those things and surrender to those things to be a true part of your life because I think we often overlook the fact that we're called a body and that when we're not a part of the body, it would be as if I came up and ripped your finger off and expected you to be fine. You wouldn't be fine. In fact, you'd turn me in and you rightfully should. And so there's a reason scripture calls us the body of Christ. And so just feeling really grateful about that, and it's an honor to be your pastor, but I do feel a responsibility as your pastor to remind you in these moments to be faithful. To be faithful to the things that we know to be true. To return many of us back to the things that we know God has called us to. That there are certain things that will always be right for the people of God will always be right for you to commune with your father, to be spending time in prayer and word. It will always be right to gather with the saints, right? It will always be right to be in community with the people of God. In fact, it's essential. You, you won't flourish without it. It will always be right to share the gospel with your neighbors, to have vision out, to see the world as Jesus sees it, right? When he looked at his disciples and said, hey, Look up, right? Like that's what he said. Look up because the fields are ripe for harvest. We just got to look up, vision out. And so those are always going to be right because here, here's the reality. You can just expect that Christianity will not get easier in the future, but in fact will get tougher. And that that's 
not only is that okay, but it's welcome because for all of history past, that has caused the church to flourish. It truly has. Persecution has never stomped out the church. In fact, it has grown the church. And so be encouraged by that. And so a few guarantees about Redeemer City Church and about the places that we're headed as a church is that, first of all, you can take this to the bank and count on it. We will not be perfect. We are not a perfect church because I'm a part of it. And you're a part of it. And that makes us an imperfect church because we're imperfect people, but we have a perfect God. Amen. And so we're we're not going to be a perfect church, but we will always be a church that gathers around the gospel of Jesus Christ. I had a pastor when I was growing up who used to say, keep the main thing, the main thing. Stick by the stuff. What was he talking about? There's always something to stick by that won't change, that won't shift. The Bible is that standard. Everything else changes. Do you think about that? Everything in your life changes constantly. What's, what's the one thing that hasn't changed for thousands of years? It's stood the test of time, and it's never changed. It's always been there for God's people. It's always been true. And so be encouraged by that. I can also tell you this. We're always going to love you. We're always going to love you, no matter what you walk through, no matter what you wrestle with, no matter what decisions you make, no matter how far you run. Just as the father with the prodigal son stands and waits for the return of his son, your heavenly father is doing that for every one of us. And if you are good enough to be in his family, no matter the decisions you make, you're good enough to be in this one. And so I want you to know that we'll always walk that journey with you. We'll always walk that journey of truth, no matter where you're at in it. And we'll always continue our vision out posture. You know, when we were taught to pray by Jesus, and as we conclude 21 days of prayer, right? What, what was the thing that he said we ought to pray? One of those things was that his kingdom would come on earth. As it is in heaven. Where do you see the kingdom? If prayer is the language of the kingdom. Then what is the visible representation of the kingdom on earth? The church. It's us. It's how we love each other and serve each other. And then serve our city. And so those are things that are just never going to change for Redeemer City Church because they've never changed in God's word. But where does that come from? Where does that come from? Why does God want Redeemer City Church to succeed and expand even? Why? Why is that? Because it was his idea. It was his idea. The church is his idea. And in fact, not just his idea, but he gave birth to it and he gave his life for it. And then the last one of the last things we get from Jesus in John 17 is that we would be one. What an amazing privilege it is to be one body in Christ. Pretty incredible. I just think about all the things that have come against the church in years past, in history past. 
all the things, whether it be in history or leaders or politics or anything like that. And, you know, I'm sure we can look around over the past few weeks and be like, man, like things are going to go interesting for the church, (laughs) for those of us who call ourselves Christians. And just to be encouraged by the fact that nothing has ever stopped the church And as we've been looking through Philippians and thinking about what our worldview is in this moment, that the thing that changes our worldview, where that posture comes from, is what we looked at last week, where Paul wrote to his friends and his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he said this, he said, everything pales in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so that, that's where we land. That's where we find ourselves this morning. But I want to just anchor us in the past, too, because this is not new. We are not the first people that have needed a anchor for the soul. All the way back in A.D. 155. All right. That's very close to Jesus, like great grandparent generation away. From Jesus, like it was there, there was a guy named Justin Martyr who wrote one of the first apologetics that we have to read. And I just want to read you one paragraph from it, just so that that as we look at Philippians 4, that we just recognize that in every cultural moment for all of the history of the church, we've been anchored in the same place. Here's what Justin Martyr wrote in 155 AD. When you hear, he's writing To the powers that be, by the way. He's a prophetic voice speaking truth to power. And here's what he wrote. When you hear that we, Christians, look for a kingdom, you rashly suppose that we mean something merely human. That's why we said for a long time, vote, follow your conscience, pray. But at the end of the day, we're citizens of heaven. We're not of this world. And this was being said right at the beginning. He said, but we speak of a kingdom with God, as is clear from our confessing Christ when you bring us to trial. Remember, being put on trial for being a Christian. Though we know that death is the penalty for this confession. For if we looked for a human kingdom, we would deny in order to save our lives and would try to remain in hiding in order to obtain the things we're looking for. But listen to me. Listen to what he says here. This is this is amazing. But since we do not place our hope on the things that are present. We are not troubled by being put to death since we will have to die somehow anyway. Don't you just love that supreme confidence in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, literally going on trial for being a Christian, walking towards death, saying, what did what if we live Christ, if we die, that's gain for me. That has always been the posture of the church. And so be encouraged. There was zero expectation then and there is zero expectation now that the kingdoms of this world are going to embrace the kingdom of God. Be encouraged by that. That despite that, 
the scripture says the gates of hell will never prevail against God's church. And so it, that, that's what we've been looking at in Philippians. And we've looked at a lot through the book. And as we come to chapter four, there's a tension that has been in the book of Philippians that I think we need to talk about real quick as we look at what chapter four talks about, because there is a place, a very specific place that our confidence in the fact that we're told in chapter four, verse one, to stand firm in the Lord. And then we're going to be told to rejoice always. There's a foundation for where that comes from. And it comes from back in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. And this won't be on the screen. I just want you to listen to it. Or if you have a Bible in front of you, you can look at it there. But where does the confidence to do what we're going to read today come from? Here's where it comes from. In verse 12 of chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Here it is. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, work out, put into practice, live out, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, your salvation. God, the creator of everything that you see, when you stand at the beach, when you go skiing on a mountain, that God who formed your child in the womb and was born out of nothing, that God who fashions those things saved you and took residence in your life and is with you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What an incredible thing that the God of the universe would move into your life and take interest in you and know the hairs on your head. And as the prophets tell us in the Old Testament would sing over you. That's powerful. That God, work out your salvation. But don't you love the the tension here that comes in the next verse? For it is God who works in you. (laughs) Work out your salvation, but just know that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Not ours, his good pleasure. And so what what is that? There is a debate that has gone on in the church for a very long time, all about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Am am I responsible or is God responsible? And I'm not going to give you anything that the history books haven't given us already because there's so many smarter people than me. But I do want you to know that the answer to that question is yes. (laughs) It's yes, they're, they're, they are not in conflict with each other. Think about it this way. I want to give you a place to put your trust in the Bible today is because with man's responsibility and God's sovereignty and the answer being yes is much like getting on a bike and having two pedals. If you didn't have one of your pedals, how would your bike ride go? Not good, right? Like you, you wouldn't ride the bike and Every day of your life, you're going to get up and you're going to make decisions in your life. So when Jesus says things like in John 15, 5, like you can do nothing apart from me. 
Did, did he really mean that you couldn't get up and brush your teeth or that you couldn't get up and read your Bible or that you couldn't get up and do something else? No, of course not. But what he's saying is, apart from me, nothing you do will have any significance or any value for eternity. And here and now, you will not flourish because you'll be living for a different kingdom that you weren't made to live for. That's why there's no answers in culture. There's beauty and there's life, but there's no answers to the eternal questions that rage in your soul. That you that every generation for all of time has asked and needed answered. It's always been there. So man's responsibility, we are participating in what God is doing. But make no mistake about it that anything that's happening is because God is doing it. He's at work in you both to will and work for his good pleasure, which, by the way, will lead to your pleasure. So that that's super important, because as we come to chapter four and look at verse one with me, it says this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for. Right. He has a relationship with these people. He loves these people who I love and long for. Then he goes so far to say my joy and my crown. I love that. This is he deeply loves these people because he has pastored them and he is for them and he knows them and they are the joy of his ministry. Here's what he says to them. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He's like, if you didn't get anything else that I just said, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. When you take those two pedals, when you get on the bike of faith and you're in Christ and you're working out your salvation as God's working in you and you're figuring out what that looks like, if, if you need a place to land and stand, stand firm in the Lord. What does standing firm in the Lord look like? In the world we now find ourselves. What does it look like in the 21st century United States of America to stand firm in the Lord? Right? We've talked about our worldview. We've talked about our reality in Christ the past few weeks. All of those things are true. And so Paul says, because of all that, stand firm in the Lord. Okay, that, that's, I agree. <laughs> what does that look like tomorrow? What does that look like when you walk out of here and forget what I preach about? Which is fine, by the way. What does it look like to stand firm in the Lord? I want to give you three things that come out of these first nine verses, if you want to write them down, about what the countercultural narrative that we live out because we are filled with the Spirit looks like. And, and again, I tell you this a lot, but these three things are where the world will see you and know that you're different. It's not because you, you know, make crazy Instagram posts and you get on everybody's comments and make a lot of comments or you have a lot of arguments or you have great apologetic skills. That, that's not what the Bible says is where people are going to notice that something's different in your life. God has used those people for sure, and maybe he will you. But the vast majority of Christianity is that mustard seed that begins to spread because there's a difference in your life and mine. And so what is that? What does is, what is standing firm in the Lord look like in our moment? Look at verse 4. The first one, if you're taking notes, is joy. Joy. 
I'm not talking about fun. I'm not talking about just being happy for an afternoon. I'm talking about long lasting, long arc of your life joy, no matter what comes into your life, no matter what trial comes in your life, no matter what celebration comes into your life, that the long term arc of your life is joy. Because look what he says in verse four. He says, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Speak to me. How often? Always. Is there any moments outside of always? No. All right. It's confession time. This is good for the soul and it's good for the church. All right. And I'm going to go first. Did I have joy? Was I rejoicing in the Lord? Always. Every moment this week. I'm going to go first. The answer is no. Okay, your turn. Did you rejoice in the Lord every moment this week? No, no. Why? Because there are still pockets of our heart that do not fully trust that what God has for us is the best. And we have to sit with that as Jerome talked about when we pray and when we read the word. We can't just read it to check it off. We have to sit with it because what does scripture call itself? The words of life. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If, I, if I'm just breezing past it, I'm not going to sit with the fact that there is an absolute promise and command here that we're to rejoice in the Lord always. And in case we wanted to brush past it, he says it again. He says, again, I will say, rejoice. What is what does it mean to rejoice? Because you're like, I don't know, Mitch, if like I can be woo every time something bad happens. That's not what that's not what rejoice means. Rejoice means steadfast, calm, through. It literally means through your life. And that's why it says rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't just say manufacture some kind of crazy happiness and be a weirdo. That's not what it says says rejoice very specifically in the Lord. Because as you look to fill that gap with tons of other things, and we all do it. We do it with our spouse. We do it with our boyfriend or girlfriend. We do it with our parents. We do it with our teachers. We do it with our schooling. We do it with our grades. We do it with our uh, paycheck. We do it with our jobs. We do it with our kids. Should I go on? We are, I forget which, which dead guy said it, but somebody said a long time ago, that our hearts are idol factories. Maybe that was Calvin. But it was so true. Right? We, we could every day, if we just got to the end of the day and made a list of all the places that I filled what should have been Jesus with something else, then we'd have plenty to confess. Right? That's why doing these practices, these spiritual practices that shape us uh, in the ways of God are so important. Because we're, we'll be tempted to think that we can do it. And I just want you to know that you can't, that you need God and you need the body. So we're told to rejoice always in the Lord. That's going to take some time. That's going to take a relationship. That's going to take a long, as Eugene Peterson wrote, a long obedience in the same direction to just set the destination for your life. And just continually press toward that goal. 
that Paul talked about last week. I press on to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God to just set the destination and then you won't have then you don't have to deviate because if you don't set the destination if you don't know where you're going with your life you're going to ask questions like man I just can't figure out what God's will is for my life but that's not true that's not true his will is right here and it's very clear the dick with the question is where is he calling you to do his will that's the only question because his because his will is very clear so we set that destination and we pursue it with great joy because no matter what comes, we always know who the Lord is. Let's keep going. What's the second one? So joy always. What's the second one? The second one is reason. Reason. This is really important. Look at verse five. Here's what it says. Let your reasonableness be known to just the people that you like. To all your Twitter followers. That's not what it says, right? What does it say? It says, everyone, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Does that mean winning tons of political arguments? Oh, only three or four of you. Am I stepping on your toes? I'm sorry. <laughs> Stepping on mine too, right? I like to think that I'm right most of the time. But that's not what the Bible calls Christians to be. God is right. And he can handle that just by himself. Right? It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Drop down to verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, how, how do I be reasonable? Think about that. We think differently as the people of God. How do I think differently? What, what does that look like? What does it mean to be reasonable in this crazy political age, in this age where even the church is so fractured and has so many troubles? Here, here's how. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. How do I know what's true? The Bible. Whatever's true, whatever is honorable, honorable, there's a concept, whatever is just, justice is the heart of God, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's just pause for a minute and say that many of us, if not all of us, have some changes to make in what we read and think about this week. A lot of us, myself included, need to read a little bit less of what's out there and read a little bit more of what's in here. Amen? Online? Can I get an amen in the chat? I know. It's not easy. But listen, th- this, is, this is life and death stuff. This, for your soul, for your flourishing, th- this is huge. Because we, we just won't do it if we aren't intentional about doing it. And there are great reasons to do it. Let me give you the best one. Back to verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness, 
reasonableness <laughs> be known to everyone. But he didn't leave us hanging, did he? Again, it says, work out your fear, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but know that God is at work. How does that play out practically? Look what he says. He says, let your reasonableness to be known to everyone. Why? How? Because the Lord is at hand. Man, if, if, if you weren't encouraged by anything I said yet today, you can be encouraged by this right now. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. That'll change things, won't it? That'll change things. You being at hand isn't going to change much, even if you win the argument. You know what'll change things? If the Lord is at hand. I've been getting the question a lot lately. Do you think we're living in the last times? Yes. And so has every Christian since the church was founded on the rock that is Jesus Christ. And when he looked at Peter and said, Peter, on you, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yeah, I do think we're living in the last times. When's that last age going to end? Your guess is as good as mine because the Bible says we can't know. It says it's coming like a thief in the night. But it is the last times. Just look around. But you can be encouraged by that, not discouraged by that. Because the Bible is so clear about what God is doing. So joy, reason. What's the last one? Rest. That's, that's the third piece of this puzzle that makes you different from the world. Joy always, reasonable to everyone, and rest that passes, surpasses understanding. Look at verse 7, or let's go back to verse 6, okay? So the Lord's at hand. Look at verse 6. Don't be anxious about most things. <laughs> Being, what does it say? Don't be anxious about anything. We could have another moment of confession. Because that's just, we're not good at that. We're not good at that. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. Right? Again, we're back to where we started in Philippians about these, these broad, sweeping terms that are inclusive of everything and everyone. They're always true. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's going to happen when I do that? When I take the pressure off me, lay those things at his feet and rest in him, what's going to happen to me? Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will what? Guard your hearts because let me remind you that Paul told the Ephesian Christians that you're in a war. That Satan hates you and he's after you. He's actively walking around seeking whom he can devour. Satan hates you and he's a liar. The things that are not of God will not satisfy you. 
So here we are. The peace of God, which surpasses all of our understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's powerful. And then verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Amen? Wow. The God of peace will be with you. How? How? How do I participate with the God of peace? Through those practices that we're told to practice. One of those is communion. I'm going to have the band come up and we're all going to take communion together. And I need one. 